Broadcasting from the heartland of America in the Hoosier Media Network Studios. The next generation in conservative talk radio. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. You are listening to the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. I'm Michael Lawson, free market economist and guest host for Andy tonight. We are coming to you live from the heart of America here in the Hoosier Media Network Studios, and this show is brought to you by Americans for Prosperity. Now, folks, uh, let's turn our attention to a topic I think that has been flying under the radar for far too long. And I think that's the overreach of unelected bureaucrats who are crafting rules and regulations that not only complicates or further complicates the actual law of the land, but in some cases directly oppose legislator intent. But I think that there's hope. And that hope comes with the RAINS Act, and I think it's gaining traction in a number of states, including here in Kansas. So joining us to discuss this issue is Hannah Cox, a prominent libertarian conservative writer, commentator, and activist known for her uh, her advocacy work and dedication to bridging that political divide. As the co-founder of Base Politics, she she is a leading voice in the fight for individual rights and limited government. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good to be with you. How are you doing tonight on Saturday night, huh? I know. Well, someone's got to do it. Otherwise, who will? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So, Hannah, tell us about what some have termed the fourth branch of government, regulations from unelected bureaucrats. Is it really becoming the biggest challenge to our individual rights and limited government? I think it really is. And and when they say it's the fourth branch of government, that's no exaggeration. Over the past decade, we have seen 20 times the number of regulations and rules put on the books compared to actual laws being passed. What that means is the vast majority of the things that we're living with that are undergirding our economy, that are determining how we live our lives, they're being put in place by people that nobody elected, nobody voted for, and also that nobody really has any control over. There's no accountability with these people. We don't have the ability to lobby them. We don't have the ability to vote them out of office. We're stuck with them. And oftentimes, the American people don't even know who they are. This is so constitutionally unsound. Our our government was set up to where the legislature made the laws, and then you had the executive and the judicial to ensure that those laws were uh, constitutional and that they were following the guidelines. That's no longer the case. And I think that not only is that a problem when you look at who's actually running our society and, and what control voters have over those people, but it's also a problem because we've got a lot of lawmakers that were paying a lot of money to be in office and they're not doing their jobs. So I think that's pretty inexcusable. It really is. You know, uh, so as a frame of reference here in Kansas, I looked it up. The administrative regulatory regulatory code is so long. um, And I think this was a research study done out of the Mercatus Center that if you decided to spend a 40 hour work week to try to read those Kansas regulations, it would take you about four and a half weeks to get through it all. So I think that kind of highlights the need for some sort of way that we can hold back regulations. So if you don't mind, explain, elaborate on the significance of the RAINS Act here at the state level and how it could really address the issue of regulatory overreach by these uh, bureaucrats here. Well, the RAINS Act is a brilliant piece of legislation, and it's brilliant because it's simplistic and it gets right to the heart of the problem. It essentially says lawmakers cannot just hand off their duty of setting laws to unelected bureaucrats. And it basically says that if you are going to have things put into place by regulatory agencies, by bureaucrats, 
then there is an actual review process that is compelled for the legislature to actually look at what they're doing, to look at the financial impact, to determine if it's constitutional, and then have some sort of a voting process to determine whether or not it passes the sniff test. I mean, this is just common sense. I, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not so partial to the idea that lawmakers need to pass off their duty to people who are quote, quote, experts, first and foremost. I think we saw <laughs> just how ill-equipped most quote experts were in the past couple of years. And I would say on top of that, if lawmakers are trying to regulate so many things that they can't actually be equipped or educated to take the time to learn that industry and those impacts, then perhaps they're involved with too many things, right? So I'm, I'm not even really convinced that, that we should be handing off these powers to, quote, experts and regulators. But if that's going to be in place, then there absolutely has to be some kind of a legislative review process to ensure that things are not running rampant, as it's very clear they have been in recent years. I mean, I don't have to tell anybody what we're living with. People on both the left and right are very well aware of just how bad the economy is, how, how hard it's getting just for the average family to pursue the American dream. And, and, you know, people aren't asking for much these days. They want to be able to purchase a home. They want to be able yes. to support their family with their salaries. They want to be able to afford groceries. That, that's inexcusable. We are the wealthiest country in the world, and something is going very, very wrong in our economy to create these conditions. Okay, so I'm going to put on my, uh, my, my liberal hat here, or should I say my devil's hat, and uh, let's have some fun. Uh, but Hannah, if we don't, uh, we don't need the Reins Act because if we have something like that, it'll just it'll just hinder public health and and public safety. Uh, we don't need this type of law taking out good regulations like like health and safety. What's your response to that, Hannah? <laughs> I mean, it's laughable, to be quite frank. I think we have all seen just what a, a ruse the notion of public health is in recent years. And again, you know, we had people using the excuse of public health to try to push things through that had nothing to do with public health. We had them trying to say that landlords could not remove people from their property. We had them saying that kids couldn't go to school even though COVID was never a threat to children, and we knew that. We saw them saying they wouldn't open public schools back up in some areas unless we defunded the police and passed Medicare for all. Give me a break. Give me a break. These people need accountability more than anything. And I'm, I'm really, I got to say this, if you, if you look into public health, uh, it, is, it is quite the Trojan horse, and, and people need to be aware of this. I was already aware of it before COVID and what they did because I worked in criminal justice reform, and you often hear the left pushing this term of public health there as well. And the reason for that is they were well aware there were all kinds of loopholes around the Constitution under this very broad term of public health. And, and that's what they intend to do when they try to use those terms, is they use it as a, a way to you know, fearmonger and scare people into giving them power uh, under the typical guise that they're going to keep you safe, as if the government has ever kept anybody safe in the history of ever. But they use that because people are afraid, and they use it to then impede their rights and to take control of the economy. And I think that that would be, if they're saying that, then I would assume their intentions are the exact same as they've been for the past couple of years. And there's absolutely mm. nothing over the past three years that should indicate to anybody these people need rampant power and do not have checks and balances. Especially wow, well people said. working in public health. Well said. Uh, tell me, to your knowledge, as I said, there's a bill uh, happening here in Kansas that will go after these regulations. Is there an effort anywhere else in the country? Yeah, we actually are seeing this pick up um, a lot of speed. And, and sometimes it's called the RAINS Act, and it's the same exact legislation. Other times here in Georgia, where I live, there's something moving that's quite similar. It's not called the RAINS Act, but it has the same intentionality. And they're structured a little bit differently here and there. You know, some of them have a certain, like, financial component attached to them that the regulation has this X amount of financial burden. That's when the legislature kicks in. Others have an automatic review process with a committee. So 
they, they take shades and forms at different places, but this issue is so popular. And it's one of those areas, you know, I talk about a lot of different public policies on my platforms and some of them, you know, they're typical kind of red meat issues. People get excited, things around Second Amendment and free speech. Others are pretty wonky and in the weeds. You really got to do a lot of work to help people understand exactly what they mean. This one, when you say it, people just get it. I mean, they just gravitate towards it immediately. People understand it's a problem. There's, there's been a lot of hope that it would pass federally. You know, Mike Lee and I think Rand Paul was on it, but definitely Mike Lee had a bill to do this federally. Um, it's really, yeah. really hard to pass things federally, so that hasn't happened yet. The good news is it's a lot easier to pass things at the state level. It's a lot easier to lobby your state house representative and state senator. So I'm very encouraged by that effort. And I think that coupled with the impending decision we're waiting on from the Supreme Court uh, on the Chevron doctrine, I assume you're up to speed on that. The audience might not be, but there's another um, initiative to the same end. The Chevron doctrine is, is sort of the legal jurisprudence we've been operating on for the past couple of decades that says essentially agencies can kind of run rampant with their authority. If, if Congress passes something giving them authority and it's not explicit, the agency can just assume that they have that power. Chevron would say, no, they cannot, that they have to be explicitly given that power. And I think given the makeup of the court, we can anticipate that coming down the pipeline in the next couple of months. So it's a big moment for this kind right. of initiative. It's really gaining steam. So you've been speaking on this issue. You're one of the first that has uh, brought the issue of getting these regulations under control, in particular using something along the lines of a RAINS Act all across the country. I just got to ask, do you have any horror stories, any any examples that you have heard of um, that just really brings this home on why this issue must be addressed as soon as is humanly possible? Well, I've got more than one. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll try to limit it. But I think what people need to understand is a lot of this boils down to not only the regulators and the bureaucrats having a ton of unchecked power, but they also have the ability to lobby on your tax dollars. And this is one of the biggest problems we face in this country. We call it taxpayer-funded lobbying. And it is – I can't – if you don't know what I'm talking about, I implore you to go spend some time at your state capitol during one of your state sessions and watch this happen. Sit in a few committees. And what you'll see is these various boards, the Commerce Board and its members, they come in on your tax dollar while they're being paid by you, which you and I don't get paid to do. We don't, we don't get paid to take off work and go nope. to the state capitol and go lobby lawmakers, but they get to do that on our tax dollar's dime. And they're always lobbying against our interests and in favor of them having more power. So I'll give one example of that. When I was working in Tennessee, which is where I got my start in politics, we were working on a lot of occupational licensing issues. I don't, I don't know if you guys have touched on this here before, but occupational licenses are another thing that's run rampant thanks to the regulatory state where they make you get a, quote, license to do everything from arranging flowers to massaging horses to braiding hair. And it's just ridiculous. There's, there's nothing about this as a public health right, re- reason right. for why you need to pay the government to do it. And there's no reason why paying the government makes you any safer of a provider. It's ridiculous. It's hogwash. So we were trying to get rid of the license that said women had to get a cosmetology degree to braid hair. Now, braiding hair is something very common in African-American communities. It's a very long tradition. And by the way, it's not something that's predominantly taught in cosmetology schools, which tend to be run by white women who don't know how to braid hair in this capacity. And yet Tennessee (laughs) was making people go get a cosmetology degree, which costs $30,000, and then also get a license, which costs several more thousand dollars just to braid hair. 
And if they didn't comply, they were finding these women, these women in the community tens of thousands of dollars. So my organization came to their defense and we were working to get rid of that license because it was corrupt and it was preventing people from working. And it was very senseless and, and they were bullying people. And what happened is the cosmetology board was staffed by people who ran the cosmetology school. So, of course, they didn't want to get rid of this. They were profiting of off of it. And they came in and they lobbied so heavily on our tax dollars dime. They said it was racist to try to deregulate this, by the way, which was just especially ridiculous. Um, they, they threw everything at us under the sun. They spent significant time pressuring various people on different committees to try to prevent this from happening. And it was really grotesque because it was so baldly them pursuing their own naked self-interest at the expense of the economy and people who were just trying to work and communities that were trying to increase their GDP and, and be sufficient on their own. I mean, it really would turn your stomach to watch how they do this because at the end of the day, this isn't a game. These are real people's lives that we're talking about. And you have somebody who's come here and they're trying to do the right thing or they were born here and they're trying to do the right thing and have a business and just pursue the American dream, and then they just hit government barrier after barrier after barrier, and they get slapped with tens of thousands of dollars in fines. It's disgusting. This is why these people need a spotlight on them, and they need to have their power stripped. There needs to be checks and balances. And, and then on top of the RAINS Act, I would say we need to make it illegal to have taxpayer-funded lobbying, but we're still, we're still a bit further away from getting that. But this is perfect, though. I mean, it just fits into the theme here of either government dependency or just flat out control and making the decisions for you. Hannah, this has been what a valuable insight. If folks want to learn more about your takes on either policy or politics, where can they go? Sure. They can follow me at Hannah D. Cox on just about every social media platform or go to base-politics.com to check out our website. Awesome. Thank you again. After the break, we're going to discuss Kansas efforts to reduce your income taxes. Don't want to miss it. Coming up next. It's your Patriot on the Prairie. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back to the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Joining us next is Catherine Lawhead, a senior policy analyst and research manager with the Tax Foundation Center for State Tax Policy out up in Washington, D.C. Catherine is a leading voice in state tax policy, providing invaluable insight and, I think, guidance to policymakers all across the country. She has extensive experience and expertise, and I believe she's here that to uh, to shed light on Kansas's groundbreaking attempt to reduce income and property taxes. So without further ado, please, Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So Kansas lawmakers, they've been trying to give back Kansas tax dollars for, what, five years so far? Uh, the last successful attempt, I thought, was changing the Kansas uh, state tax law so that families and businesses could enjoy up to maybe 100 percent of President Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, give listeners, if you can, an overview of this latest spat between Democrat Laura Kelly and Republicans on the tax reform proposal that included a single rate that was considered this year? Well, that was the main difference between Republicans' proposal and the governor's proposal. Besides that flat tax, there wasn't much light of day between what the governor wanted to do and what Republicans in the legislature wanted to do. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that they weren't able to come to an agreement that the governor wasn't willing to sign 
many of her own priorities into law um, with the main difference just being that flat tax structure. Now, that is one of the main keys of the bill is that that is the main part of the bill that would create long term economic growth for the state, reducing that top marginal rate bringing three brackets down into one like a lot of other states have done. So that was, in my mind, kind of the cornerstone of this legislation. But, of course, they'd also, you know, accelerate the removal of the sales tax on groceries, increase the amount of uh, property value that's exempt from property taxes, exempting uh, retirement income from income taxation, all kinds of different proposals. So it would have given something to everyone. Uh, But really, you know, that move to the flat tax is what would have set Kansas apart and really taken the state to the next level in terms of tax reform. You know, earlier in the uh, segment here, I'm talking about how it seems that, you know, the far left doesn't want to simplify the tax code because it's to their benefit to make it more complicated. Uh, their rich friends can, of course, hire the lawyers and accountants needed to navigate that tax system and make sure that they get off scot-free, while the vast majority of families and businesses have to deal with the higher rates and have no idea you know, when you make changes, whether you're really lowering things or not. But nonetheless, we have noticed that throughout many different states, there have been trends in interstate migration or trends in the competitiveness of states. Tell me, how crucial is it for Kansas policymakers to prioritize tax reforms that provide broad-based relief and then, of course, improve the state's uh, tax rate structure? That's really critical of a conversation that needs to be happening right now because it's happening everywhere else. In the past three years alone, we saw 26 states reduce their income tax rates, including 23 that reduced their top marginal rate, and five states that moved to a flat tax structure. And every single one of Kansas's neighbors was among the states that reduced their top marginal rate at least once and, you know, reduced corporate rates, a lot of them as well. Uh, other states are reforming their taxes. The median top marginal rate has come down substantially over the past decade and especially in the past three years. So it's really a good time, especially with all this extra revenue on hand. Lawmakers won't always have the luxury of having strong revenue, strong surpluses. Yes, but yes. right now. Well, that's that sounds. That... No, go ahead and finish quickly. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, now's the time to act. Awesome. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for coming down. If you want to find more of Catherine's work, go to taxfoundation.org. We'll be back, folks. With Andy Hoosier. When Reason Meets Radio, this is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back to The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. I'm Michael Austin, free market economist, taking over for the good Andy uh, here in uh, Hoosier Media Network Studios. So the new Civil Liberties Union, and I wonder if they call themselves that because the ACLU has gone such an about face nowadays. They, The new Civil Liberties Union has filed a lawsuit against the SEC alleging the, quote, board diversity rules, unquote, lack legal authority and infringe on First Amendment rights. Translation, they might be discriminating against conservative employees. 
So we have here uh, Scott Shepard, director of the National Center's Free Enterprise Project, to join us discussing this pivotal legal battle. Scott Shepard is a fellow, as I said, at the National Center and director of their Free Enterprise Project, and he is leading the charge against the infiltration of woke ideology in corporate America. With his background in law and academia, I think he brings extensive expertise to the forefront in the fight for free enterprise. Welcome, Scott. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Andy. It's great to be with you, and and thank you for that intro. (laughs) Not a problem at all. So uh, let's start with some background here on this lawsuit challenging this uh, SEC board diversity rules. Uh, Explain to us why this affirmative action rule is likely legally defective. Yes. Well, as as you suggested, we're represented by the the New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, that the is acting uh, in response to the failure of the old civil liberties uh, organizations, particularly the ACLU, to stand up for the freedoms that it was designed uh, to support because those freedoms now support conservatives. And and so we've joined together to oppose a rule that, that has been established by NASDAQ, which is one of the big uh, stock exchanges in the U.S., um, that would require that there be minimum quotas of boards of directors for anybody listed on the NASDAQ uh, by race, sex, orientation, and ethnicity. And then in order for that rule to apply, it had to be approved by the SEC. Well, the SEC, of course, is a government agency. And it's been, it's been law in this country since the 40s. That the United, that no uh, uh, branch of government, state or federal, can do or adopt or support anything that results in discrimination that violates the civil rights laws. Well, having quotas that, uh, on the basis of race, sex, orientation, et cetera, those violate the civil rights laws. And so we're attacking on, on those grounds, as are uh, a fellow plaintiff uh, that, that's uh, represented by Boyd and Gray and associates. And we're also uh, opposing this because, as it turns out, agencies can only do what Congress has said they can do. They, can, they don't get to do whatever they want, although this administration's agencies really <laughs> don't understand that, right? No, they but, don't. But, but they can't. Uh, so the SEC can only do what is authorized by the Securities Exchange Act. And there's nothing in there that allows this agency to approve rules that would allow markets to discriminate in this way. So statutorily, constitutionally, procedurally, this is a terrible rule. It has to be thrown out. You know, I looked into this just a little bit, uh, of course, not as not as detailed as, as you might have. Um, but the SEC said that they they approve these rules under the premise that they promote, quote, fair and orderly markets, unquote. And as a free market economist, I find that awfully laughable because doesn't mandating race and gender quotas fly in direct conflict with the idea of a fair market? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, very in the, the, the nicest interpretation for the SEC, it is unrelated to uh, orderly and fair uh, construction of orderly and fair markets. And so is beyond its 
remit. Really what it is is a destruction of orderly and fair markets because, as you say, uh, uh, discrimination is the opposite of fairness, openness, ordinariness. Uh, uh, and, and so this is, this is the SEC turning its mandate on its head in order to uh, go along with the whole of government initiatives of the Biden administration, which are two. They are introducing uh, the new discrimination into everything and decarbonizing according to political schedules that, that will make us all very, very poor. Now, if you follow the next step of that, that happens to be, just happens to be, the two central goals of the ESG activists who claim that they're just, they're just, you know, trying to get companies to be good citizens. But it turns out the good citizen means total leftist. Yes, yes. Okay, so that's a great point there. ESG, environmental, social, and governance, particularly corporate governance that we're seeing um, where these woke elite leftists are using your money and instead of investing it in, in, in meritous purposes, they're using it to push, you know, this leftist agenda. So kind of tell me here, what are the broader implications of this case, I think, in stopping that G of ESG, stopping this corporate governance and, and affirmative action? Well, I think it, I think it's absolutely central um, for a couple of reasons. One is if if uh, if this rule gets shot down, then it will be a direct uh, uh, recognition, a, a direct uh, order to corporations. Knock it off with this stuff. Your DEI programs, if they discriminate against the non-diverse, that still violates the civil rights laws. We all have the same civil rights, even if you deign us non-diverse. And so you'd better get on the stick and withdraw. Don't make excuses or come up with, with BS uh, justifications. Take down all of those programs that you established since the riot summer of 2020 and uh, and get back to following the law. Whereas if this rule is allowed to stand, you know, the, the quotas aren't very big right now, but the size of the quotas has nothing to do with whether they're they're legal or not. So if this rule is blessed at NASDAQ, then the other um, stock exchanges are going to get bullied into going along. And they will go along. The quotas will rise so that it's not a couple of board members under the quotas and the rest allowed to be picked freely. But um, quotas that, that extend more extensively, that, that have specific numbers for every category that left-wing administrations like, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and, and it'll be an, a march through um, the destruction of the civil rights laws, which – you know, the, the lefties think is great right now, but once they're gone, it's, do you remember, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the movie was from the 60s, but when the devil turns around on you, what are you going to yes. do then, having, having cut down all the laws? Paul Schofield as, uh, as Thomas More, one of the greatest movies of all time. A man for all seasons. That's what it is. Well, it, you know, it really does sound like it just, it creates a precedent that's going to take on a life of its own. And once again, yeah. the unintended consequences, well, are unintended. You can't really, you know, think of all the different ways that this particular action will come back. Maybe it might be in your favor, but as history has shown, it definitely can come back to bite you. You know, um, we're, we're, we're getting a little bit close to our, our commercial break, but I do want you to answer one more question for me. So the Fifth Circuit panel, I think they upheld these rules, but the new Civil Liberties Alliance is, is seeking an en banc 
you know, uh, re- rehearing. Um, well, we if got you can a little bit on uh, bonk. Excuse me. Uh, tell me the key legal arguments that you think the uh, NCLA will present um, during this rehearing, and, and what outcome, obviously, are we hoping for? Well, we we were granted the on bonk reconsideration, and as part of that, the the three lefty judge panel that originally decided and decided in favor of the SEC, its opinion was vacated. It's no longer it's no longer uh, uh, has any operative power. So the whole Fifth Circuit will sit to hear this uh, again and to start fresh. And the thing about having on bonk granted is the people who. Um, the, the whole panel votes to decide whether to to uh, hear it again and vacate the the, uh, the the decision below. And generally, when that happens, it's because a majority of the of the the um, Fifth Circuit judges have decided, yeah, that was the wrong one. We're going to flip it back over. And so we're we're confident and or at least very hopeful that that's the result we're going to see. And and uh, when we make the arguments to the on banc, we're, we we're obliged to stick to what we said in our briefing and uh and the briefing hasn't changed from last time but as i say we've got our arguments are uh that this is unconstitutional that it's beyond the statutory remit of the sec that it was not conducted it violates the the administrative procedures act because there's an admission right in the rule you know we don't have any evidence the evidence is inconclusive about whether hiring uh, directors on the basis of surface characteristics instead of merit increases company value. And you understand as a as an economic uh, scholar that there are rules you have to follow in order for uh, yes. research to be valid, to be relevant, to have any validity. And we've looked extensively at, at uh, the research that the other side's relying on. And uh, for, for, a, for a family audience, it's bunkum. It it doesn't support the proposition that's proposed that forced surface characteristic diversity um, increases value. Often there there are little studies about pretend uh, jury sequestrations and stuff that have no relevance at all, no controls. It's just nonsense and laughable, and that's going to be a, a real problem for the for the SEC as well. Scott, um, we're we're coming a little bit on the uh, commercial break here, but um, I, I, I just saw this come up in front of my computer. This 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 story about Apple um, having some sort of viewpoint discrimination in its EEOC policy. Um, tell me, do, do you mind sticking around for a little bit? Uh, maybe coming in uh, after the break. I I would love to have your comments on it. Sure, no problem. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that is great. Um, We're going to take a a little bit of a break here. We're definitely going to return after these messages. But when we come back, I want to take a deeper look at this uh, viewpoint discrimination happening at Apple, the supposedly innovative type company. I don't believe it at all. We'll be returning after these messages. You're listening to The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. America's safe space for common sense. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back. You're listening to The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. I'm here with Scott Shepard of the National Center's uh, Public Policy Research Free Enterprise Project. 
So, Scott, as I was just saying before the commercial break, I, I noticed this news here where the Free Enterprise Project presented a shareholder proposal Wednesday morning at the at Apple's annual uh, shareholder meeting. And this proposal asks Apple to stop discriminating based off of viewpoint or ideology and put that in your in their written EEOC policy. What's going on here? Why is Apple arguably throwing a proverbial tantrum over this? Why do they want to dis- uh, discriminate against those who just have a political different viewpoint? Well, I know it'll come as a, a shock to you and your listeners that Apple is, uh, discriminates by, by viewpoint. They've been they've been so unclear about that in the past. Uh, it was once <laughs> uh, Apple. Apple was once a really innovative uh, company, and and it was also a libertarian. And, uh, and, and free market company. You m- may remember, uh, we're, we're increasingly a small group that can remember, in the Super Bowl in 1982, they ran uh, an ad claiming that Apple's home computers were the antidote, the defense against an Orwellian 1984 society. Right? They yes. threw a computer through the big screen, uh, and Big Brother was shattered. Well, now they've become 1984. They're they're uh, uh, exactly doing. I mean, there, there are words that you can use, words that you can't use, words that they have a special meaning for. If the the information uh, you're conveying is information they don't like, it becomes disinformation or misinformation, even if it's true or an opinion, and 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 they exclude it, and they do that to their employees as well. So they claim that they're not discriminating on the basis of. of uh, uh, orienta- uh, of, of viewpoint, but they won't include it in their EEO policy, despite the fact that they claim they're not discriminating in any other ways, and those are all included in the EEO policy. Well, so the, oh, I'm go, sorry, go, go ahead and finish up. Go, uh, no, I was gonna, I was gonna say that uh, you know, Apple. You're right. Apple was supposed to be known for stoking new ideas and and being innovative, and yet this this blatant refusal to actually accept different ideas shows that they're no different than any other woke brand we've seen in the last couple of years. Isn't that right? That, that, that's exactly right. And they built they built the discrimination in at every level. Talk about systemic discrimination. It's crazy. <laughs> so the way they discriminate, they they have human rights policies and, and behavior policies that all that all employees have to follow all the time and narc on each other if they they see any noncompliance. Well, those policies themselves have the left wing positions in them, equity-based discrimination, decarbonization according to political schedules, all, all the way up and down the line. And, and uh, employees have to uh, tout those positions. And yeah. then if they're investigated for failing to do that, they're, they're forbidden by the company to talk to anybody about it on fear of termination. So they pretend wow. that they've got open, that you can talk. It's all uh, BS. And then they give tons of shareholder money to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which has become a racket for taking organizations that just oppose woke and labeling them hate organizations and what they support hate. And then you can be fired at Apple for, for supporting hate, too. So oh it's my just a machine of viewpoint discrimination at Apple. Uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, they put racism on anything like it's catch-up. Oh, my goodness, you're exactly right. Um Scott, well, this has been eye-opening, eye-opening, just to say the least, um, especially about this brazen attempt to discriminate against conservative employees. Um, if folks want to know more about either your efforts or the efforts of Free Enterprise Project, where should they go? 
Sure. We're at freeenterpriseproject.org or just nationalcenter.org and and uh, and go down uh, to our subsite. And uh, and we'd love to hear from you and uh, and we'd love for for your listeners to to join the fight any way they can. Thank you so much for the time, Scott. You have a great weekend. You too. Well, folks, that is a wrap for today's episode of uh, The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier, brought to you by Americans for Prosperity and with me, Michael Austin, free market economist, as your guest host. Um, We've had some fascinating discussions tonight, right, on critical issues facing our economy and our society. I want to give a big thank you to all of our guests for their such valuable insights. Remember, folks, stay informed, stay engaged, always seek the truth. And tune in next time for more thought-provoking discussions. Until then, take care, stay rational, stay reasonable. Good night, everyone.